0: Hey y'all, today we're going to talk about the about 10-year period when the Soviet Union actively called out American racism in its own big anti-racism campaign, and the Black Americans at the center of this campaign, how they utilized and shaped Soviet anti-racist efforts. Let's talk about this time when Black America and the Soviet Union were fighting on the same side against American racism, I have with me Professor Meredith Roman of SUNY Brockport, Author of the book Opposing Jim Crow African Americans and the Soviet Indictment of U.S. Racism from 1928 to 1937. In order to talk about the Soviet Union's indictment of American racism, I think the first burning question we have to address is why the Soviet Union would put all of this effort into targeted anti racism against the United States?
1: That's a great question. One of the, I think, most important things to keep in mind is that there was this utopian hope, this revolutionary dream that humanity could be taken to another level, (laughs) and that Soviet leaders, some of whom were a bit more idealistic than others, dreamed of a world where there wouldn't be conflict, there wouldn't be racism, there wouldn't be sexism, there wouldn't be exploitation of any form. So part of creating new human beings was educating them in the wrongs, the injustices of racism. And of course, early on, Soviet leaders were at odds with the United States because they were seen as the leading capitalist, one of the leading capitalist forces in the world. And there was not diplomatic recognition with the United States until November 1933. So there was a desire on the part of Soviet leaders to claim their society as being at least morally superior to the United States. And so racism was an easy target to sort of try and upstage American claims to freedom and liberty and democracy. They chose to focus on racism.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Racism is kind of America's big glaring fault in promises of democracy and freedom. And since the Soviet Union was trying to promote socialism as like a better way to do things, it makes sense to like poke at that fault. Yeah, they didn't have to make
1: a lot up. (laughs) They had a lot to choose from. American racial politics, American racial apartheid made it easy for them to sort of expose just how hollow a lot of the claims were to sort of being leaders of the quote unquote free world.
0: I do want to zoom in on the year 1928. It wasn't just the way that the Soviet Union saw America that changed. It was kind of the way the Soviet Union also saw black America specifically. That's like really critical to why this campaign got really intense at that time.
1: Yeah, 1928 is a pivotal turning point because it is the year that the Communist International or the Common Term, with the input of African-American communists like Harry Haywood, declare African-Americans an oppressed nation with the right to national self-determination. And that wasn't something that everyone agreed with in the Communist Party, including other African-American communists, but it was something that Haywood and others emphasized was really important in terms of getting respect and dignity and cementing the cause for Black equality. So that nation terminology put African-Americans on an equal playing field with all other nations in the world, right? anti-colonial causes, right, of nationhood trying to sort of establish their independence, being able to determine their own political, economic, social, cultural destiny was huge. So it allowed for sense of pride, but also a platform by which to sell the communist program to audiences, both black and white. And it was also a key turning point because this was the time when the Soviet Union is now seeing that capitalism is in crisis. It's about to enter crisis. And so now is the time to push for greater revolution. And now this is the time that The Soviet Union was abandoning any state capitalist policies and pursuing socialism, the building of socialism through massive industrialization and collectivization. And so that renewed revolutionary impetus to make sure that they were not emulating any of the capitalist ways by rejecting racism was something that was really important in forging this revolutionary path to socialism. And so this also means that there's greater opportunities for African Americans to come to the Soviet Union either as communists to study in the Comintern universities, as workers, because there's a labor shortage during the time of the Great Depression throughout the Western capitalist world. The Soviet Union is actually experiencing labor shortage. So they recognize that they need Western expertise and they're willing to pay. African-American workers to come and lend that expertise. That's another reason why 1928 is such a pivotal moment. There's also a greater number of African-Americans coming to participate in common turn or trade union congresses, since they are now representative of an oppressed nation with the right to national self-determination. There's also just other folks who are interested in seeing what this revolutionary experiment playing out, what potential use it could serve for the African-American freedom struggle.
0: So, in declaring Black America an oppressed nation within America, which was seen as a capitalist enemy to the Soviet Union, Black people became a revolutionary ally. The way to get a socialist revolution in America was to ally with Black America. That's just super interesting. And you just mentioned the way that a lot of workers went to the Soviet Union. You actually mentioned in your book that expatriates. We talk about a lot of after the First World War, a lot of them going to Paris. But actually, Russia was like the second place they went to after Paris. And I want to zoom into the experience of Black workers, because you spent a whole chapter on one specific worker named Robert Robinson. And I want to talk about his case. It's really interesting.
1: I'm glad you find it so fascinating. He was the individual who drew me to this topic. I was reading through historian Alison Blakely's monumental study, Russia and the Negro from 1986, which he published with Howard University Press. And in one chapter, he mentioned this case of Robert Robinson, this African-American worker who was in Stalingrad at the Stalingrad Tractor Factory, which was a giant of socialist industry. So it was a prize factory in the Soviet Union and that he had been beaten up by some white Americans and that there was a trial of the white American attackers and they were expelled from the Soviet Union. And that sort of line led me on this chase to really figure out who this guy was, what really happened, how this trial, this case was played up in the Soviet press. It was that that inspiration that drew me to the topic. So Robert Robertson was originally from Jamaica and he was part of Caribbean migration to the United States in the early 20th century, looking for a better life, looking for employment opportunities. He ends up at the Detroit Ford Motor Company and is not treated in his own recollections with the dignity and respect that he of course demanded and wanted. And so when the Soviet representatives came to the Ford Motor Company, they recruited Robert Robinson as well as over 300 white american workers and so in 1930 he ends up in stalingrad at this prize factory and from his account he's treated very well by the russian workers the russian foreman his only problem is with the white americans who he traveled to stalingrad with and in one particular case He's walking along the Volga River and, you know, they basically say, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. A scuffle ensues. And this becomes, a week later, this huge case that gets national attention in the Soviet Union, it even is reported in the New York Times and the Times of London, because the metal workers union, that is the leading trade union at Stalingrad Tractor factory, they see this as an opportunity to say, hey, Listen, we respect and appreciate your industrial expertise. We want that. We need you to teach us, but at the same time, we don't want American racial politics. We don't we don't believe in them. We don't we reject racism. So this was a way of putting American racism on trial. And essentially for several days, this trial gets <laughs> national news coverage, not only in the local press, but the, the all-union press. And the two men are deported the sentences that we will deport you from the Soviet Union. Now, Robinson, Soviet leaders make him this sort of poster child, all the sort of negative connotations of being a poster child, He's eventually transferred to a factory in Moscow where he is able to become, assume a leadership role where he's training Soviet workers, especially in the craft of tool making. He's elected to the Moscow City Soviet, something he does not want to do. So he's engaging in things that he doesn't necessarily want to do, but the pay is good. And the general treatment that he receives on a day-to-day level is something that affirms his humanity and his dignity. So he's willing to put up with these things. He's also supporting his mother in the United States. He's sending money back. So this is also an incentive to sort of put up with these desire of Soviet leaders to use him as this model of, look, the paragon of Soviet anti-racism, look what we can do for you, right? Sort of that very paternalistic discourse. Eventually, he escapes, as he calls it, the Soviet Union in the 1970s, and writes this autobiography in 1988, which the CIA seemingly was involved in helping to get published. And so although he uses that autobiography to condemn the Soviet Union for practicing political repression, but also for not eradicating racism, he admits, especially in the chapter on his experience in Stalingrad, that all the Russian workers were pleasant towards him, you know, excessively kind, and that after the trial was over a trial that he didn't necessarily want. (laughs) He is walking along the Volga River and feels an exhilarating feeling of freedom. He remarks in this memoir, this autobiography, that he truly felt like the threat of racial violence and oppression removed from him in that moment because these white Americans had, their conduct had been censored and they had been, the ruling was that they were to be deported from the Soviet Union. It's complex. And that's why I focus on his story so much, because it's fascinating. He could have not admitted that. This was a publication, again, that seemingly the U.S. government was using to condemn and discredit Soviet anti-racism. But at the same time, he admitted that Soviet anti-racism also had a positive effect on his own sort of state of mind, right, in that moment.
0: Robinson, because of this racially charged situation that he ended up in, he became a symbol of Soviet anti-racism in a way because he experienced racism in a country that claimed they were fighting for anti-racism. The Soviet Union kind of forced him to like have a lot of success publicly so that it would be proof that those people might be racist, but we as a country are not. We are better than that, which also gets into, you mentioned paternalism, which is The central problem you talk about with the Soviet Union's anti-racism campaign was that it was about elevating the Soviet Union as morally superior to capitalist countries, specifically like Western capitalism. Because that was the main objective, there were ways in which it still fed into racism.
1: That's the major paradox, that there's this desire to overcome racism, yet a lot of their policies and practices were about reinforcing certain racial hierarchies. So African-Americans were a partner and a value partner, but still a subservient one that we're seeing. I don't want to portray it as completely Exploitation without any desire to respect their expertise or respect their knowledge. And I don't want to discount that individual relationships could be very positive and not carry this paternalistic flavor, if you will. Um, But certainly, there was this savior (laughs) complex. We have the path for you, and you might provide us with some input and some insight into certain aspects of American society and how we can attack American racism. But at the same time, we can help to uplift you and you will be valuable partners, but not necessarily equal partners in that relationship.
0: That really gets into the idea of the Soviet Union was at times like clearly pursuing opportunism. But there was a way that if opportunism benefited Black people, it was still like benefiting Black people. So people still defended the Soviet Union because some of
1: his actions did help Black America. Absolutely. And that's the fascinating piece. And it's one that myself and other scholars have pushed back on this notion that a lot of these African-Americans were just used. And something that I strongly argue is that they weren't tools, they weren't dupes, that in many ways they were using the Soviet Union, right, using their opportunism for their own benefit. They saw value in being able to challenge whether it be U.S. leaders or British leaders or French leaders, by having this bastion of proclaimed anti-racism. You're claiming to be the world's defenders of democracy, but look, this socialist nation, the first socialist nation is excelling in terms of providing opportunities and eliminating discrimination, even if they knew (laughs) that wasn't always true, right? But the idea of that, I think it provided them with some hope, but it also provided them with a means to challenge Western democratic capitalist leaders to do better, to sort of make real gains in terms of the Black freedom struggle.
0: A good example, you talk about the Scottsboro trial and the way that the Soviet Union took up a giant international campaign in defense of the Scottsboro boys, which we should talk about.
1: The Scottsboro case is really important because it's this case of nine young African American teenagers who are wrongfully convicted of raping two white prostitutes on a train. And they're sentenced to death. The youngest one is life imprisonment because I think he's only 12. But for whatever purposes, and this is what many African Americans recognized. Whether or not the Soviet Union and Soviet leaders were motivated by opportunism, the ability or relish the ability to upstage the United States in this regard, it still had a real benefit because the young men were not executed and were ultimately, unfortunately, not immediately. And some of them sat in prison for long periods of time, but at the same time, they were not executed, which was the original plan. So the Soviet Union organized rallies, protests. I mean, the number of archival records that I read that at least portrays this image of even farm workers, of school children, writing letters, pledging to sowing so many, our terms, acres of land on behalf of the Scottsboro Nine. This was something that drew attention to this major miscarriage of justice. And so African Americans who were in the Soviet Union at the time spoke at these rallies. They found That sometimes the Soviet participants in these rallies were more informed about the developments in the case than they were. It was something that, okay, even though this might be propaganda, it's having a real effect because it's shining a much needed light on a major miscarriage of justice in the United States and helping to save the lives of the Scottsboro Nine. And even the mother of one of the Scottsboro boys she basically credits the Russians for saving her son's lives. So call it what you may, propaganda also had whatever the intentions behind it were. It could also have real positive, tangible consequences for developments in the Soviet Union as well in the United States. And that's one instance that I think most vividly shows that. It provides a contrast with The intolerance that the Soviet Union was emphasizing that they show towards any act of racial injustice, that not only does the United States commit racial violence or racial discrimination against African-Americans, but they also refuse to take any action against legal lynching, that this is how corrupt and sort of bankrupt and hypocritical is the American racial democratic system.
0: That chapter was wild. I never realized that the Soviet Union had been so involved with following the Scottsboro trial and fighting for the Scottsboro 9.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was something that the NAACP refused to take up initially because it did involve rape and they were concerned about taking on a case that could potentially sully their own reputation. And so it was the International Labor Defense, which was an arm of the Communist Party and the Comintern, the Communist International, that really came to their legal aid and really made sure, especially in those first two years, that the young men were not executed.
0: Yeah, the Soviet Union really felt like it was their responsibility to speak out and lead this campaign because they said that Black America was their like revolutionary ally and this was an attack on their allies. So they rallied for them. And the images of the Scottsboro Nine was everywhere in the Soviet Union. There were pictures, there were all kinds of political
1: cartoons. People knew about this and saw it all the time. I would argue that probably Soviet citizens were more familiar with the images of the Scottsboro Nine than were white Americans (laughs) because it wasn't being covered to the same degree. And of course, in the the Soviet case, the Scottsboro Nine were portrayed as African-American workers (laughs) who were being persecuted. That was sort of a different spin on it. So in that case, they were directly made to be revolutionary allies because they were part of the working class. They became more of a part of common discourse in the Soviet Union in 31 and 32 than in the United States, especially among you know sort of the dominant white population in the United States. That's amazing. You mentioned lynching
0: a little while back, and it kind of ties to the Scottsboro trial because actually the Soviet press depicted lynching very often. And the Scottsboro trial was just kind of an extension of that. It was saying that white Americans had the freedom to just lynch Black people in the streets and the legal system also victimized Black people. I want to go back and look at the way that lynching was portrayed in the Soviet press at this time.
1: Yeah, especially during the Stalingrad trial, it was again, lynching photographs were juxtaposed with images of the Stalingrad trial, or even at the time of the Stalingrad trial, there were several African-American delegates in Moscow for a Congress of the Profintern, which was the International Trade Union organization. And so it was a means of showing African-Americans in political positions, participating in these Congresses or being defended from white American assailants, then contrasted with the brutal images of African-American lynch victims, especially the double lynching from Marion, Indiana, had great play in the Soviet press, I think in part because it had this large smiling white crowd beneath the corpses of the two men. Again, the U.S. racial violence and the inaction of the U.S. government made it easy for Soviet propagandists to really expose just the hypocrisy of American claims to justice and freedom You could say, well, maybe it's a bit sensationalist in terms of reproducing these images because they also put them on postcards and sold them at kiosks in Moscow. But a lot of the African-Americans who were in the Soviet Union at the time didn't necessarily see that as something that made them uncomfortable or that the people who they encountered saw them as less than being exposed to these images. They expressed appreciation that a power was exposing them in a way that they hoped would be the case in the United States, that there would be some outrage and use of these images to force the U.S. government to take action, to stop them and punish those who are engaging in these extralegal forms of violence. So the exposure of the lack of respect for law, which is something that U.S. leaders like to claim, you know, did not exist in the Soviet Union. (laughs) Soviet leaders would say those who are perpetrating this lawless behavior are let off. So lynching was huge. Claude McKay, the famous Jamaican novelist and poet, said when he was in the Soviet Union in the early 1920s, white Russians didn't scare him, but white Americans were the source of hostility and potential violence. But white Americans repeatedly complained to U.S. officials when they were leaving the Soviet Union about the fact that many Russians thought that they were involved in these lynchings. They didn't like that African-Americans whom they encountered in the Soviet Union were being afforded respect. They were being treated as equals. They complained and warned to U.S. officials that this was dangerous because it was making them think that they were equal to white men and they would come back to the United States and demand their equality and be pompous and unruly. And again, going back to the whole issue of propaganda or opportunism, was there opportunism at play, of course, and some of that was mixed with real idealism and hope for building a new world. But at the same time, the enemies of racial equality found this propaganda to be very dangerous because of the tangible consequences it had on the African-American population who was circulating in and out of the Soviet Union.
0: You were talking about the way that there were a lot of lynching images all over the Soviet Union. And I mean, there were a lot of lynching images around America. There were also lynchings on postcards in America, but there was a way that that was used to glorify violence against Black people. But in the Soviet Union, it was meant to elicit horror. This is a bad thing that should not be happening and we're better than that. There was just like a clear difference in how these two things were happening in the U.S. versus the Soviet Union.
1: Right. Absolutely. An excellent point. The use of and circulation of lynching photographs in the U.S. was to maintain and celebrate white supremacy and reinforce black inferiority and black inequality, whereas (laughs) they were supposed to be serving a revolutionary purpose in the Soviet Union again, expose just how horrible and violent was American racial capitalism. Going back to the issue of trying to see them as our allies and needing to save them or help them by sharing Soviet communist ideology with them and supporting their struggle, that paternalism, though, also informs that notion of wanting to help the oppressed population in the United States. And of course, African-Americans were identified as the most oppressed So they were meant to be part of the gaining empathy, getting support, spreading revolutionary consciousness among Soviet citizens that, look, we don't want capitalism. This is what capitalism leads to. It leads to lawlessness. It leads to violence. It leads to racial hatred. It's not about elevating humanity, but reinforcing white capitalist domination.
0: There were these lynching photos in the newspapers, but that was one of kind of many ways that the Soviet Union tried to teach anti-racism to the general population. I want to get into some of the other ways that happened. One
1: of the key tactics were these political education campaigns, so that would include the Stalingrad trial trial. That includes the Scottsboro campaign where essentially workers, students, collective farmers were at least supposed to take part in rallies or were supposed to take part in lectures or attend lectures in which ideally it would be an African-American who would be coming and lecturing to them. But I've also found almost like a lesson plan of, you know, how to deliver one of these lectures. And this is what you touch on, part of this anti-racist education was about familiarizing the Soviet populace with American racism and how it functioned and played out. But there was also, even in children's magazines and books, there were these stories about American racial prejudice and discrimination and how it harmed African-American children and how it was wrong to exclude somebody simply because of their skin pigmentation and that we need to be better than the United States by treating everyone with respect and dignity, that we are one humanity, you know, the sort of universalism inherent in that. Um, So that was another method. There was also a lot of times just images of African-Americans just randomly popping up in the Soviet press, sometimes with really no explanation, but just sort of a caption, you know, sort of telling readers that this was so-and-so working or attending a political congress or working in a particular factory. And so I read those as sort of models of, hey, African-Americans are part of our effort to build this new revolutionary society. Of course, they're going to be here. They're just going to randomly pop up in our reading material and that we are to accept them as members of our revolutionary family, if you will. Another really
0: interesting thing that you get into a lot and what you just said kind of demonstrates it even more is the way that the Soviet Union specifically, one of its big anti-racist things was that state-sanctioned racism was not something you found in the Soviet Union at this time. Any kind of racism there would have been on a societal level
1: Right. And that was a huge contrast for a lot of African Americans who are traveling to the Soviet Union during this period of the late 1920s, early 1930s. Because segregation was so prominent, the fact that public transportation was not segregated, the fact that the schools, the institutions, the dormitories where they were living, the restaurants, there was no affording of second class accommodations. The threat of no physical violence was also huge. I mean, Paul Robeson talks about this. And obviously, as we talked about earlier, Robert Robinson even mentioned the psychological effect that that had you know, to be free from the threat of physical harm, bodily harm, especially if you're interacting with white women, that threat of physical violence was removed. That had a huge impact. And that's not to say that there were not aspects of what some African-Americans saw as reproducing institutional racism or state-sanctioned racism. As I mentioned in the fifth chapter in particular on the International Lenin School, it was only because African-Americans at the Communist University of the Toilers of the East complained (laughs) that many African-Americans were not being sent to the more prestigious International Lenin School that communist leaders basically said, oh yeah, I guess you're right. (laughs) We can't keep sending African-Americans or only omitting one or two to the International Lenin School and sending the rest to the Communist University of the Toilers of the East, which was in general an institution that was more for colonized peoples or even peoples from Soviet Central Asia, that we are operating in some ways a all-white institution and a people-of-color institution. And this is something that is a legitimate gripe because initially they were keeping out African-American communists from the International London School because they had a set of political standards, like you had to be a party member and be an industrial worker for so many years. But as Comintern leaders even admitted, well, we've been letting in white Americans who don't fit these political standards or requirements. So they're calling us on something that is hypocritical when looking at our commitment to anti-racism. In that case, it's African-Americans taking an active role in making Soviet policy and Soviet leaders more aware of the ways they're reproducing racism and the ways in which they need to counteract that. So, When anti-racism becomes improved, it's in many cases because African-Americans are challenging Soviet leaders to improve it, (laughs) teaching them in in essence that this is wrong and it needs to change. And sometimes those efforts weren't realized. I mean, there were still anti-racist images of African-Americans also coexisted sometimes with really stereotypical images of African-Americans or African-descended people in general in advertisements for example, or even in certain plays. And so it's African-Americans and in some cases African communists basically saying this is wrong (laughs) and this is giving further ammunition to those who want to claim that Soviet anti-racism is just BS. It's it's not really real because you have these highly racialized images coexisting with the anti-racist ones. Sometimes those were removed, sometimes they weren't. There were still complaints about them. They're always pushing. And that's why, you know, it's so important to not see African-Americans as being used or being tools, that they are actively engaging in dialogue and challenging the Soviet officials at every level, at every turn to make good on their promises and to do better. And sometimes they get results, other times they don't.
0: That gets into another interesting theme of your book about the way that the Soviet Union and even white Americans who came and worked in the Soviet Union didn't completely understand racism. They saw racism as like lynchings and segregation and state-sponsored things and less as societal internalized racism, which caused clashes when Black Americans tried to point out things that were less overt forms of racism in the Soviet Union.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it it comes to the fore, especially at the International London School, once you do have a larger class of African-Americans coexisting with a large number of white Americans in particular. And they call these white American fellow students to task at every turn at the ways in which they're treating them. And of course, the major defenses of white American communists is that, well, i fought against lynching. I'm not physically attacking you. So I have a strong record of fighting for Black equality and recruiting Black workers. So how could I be a racist? Like, how could I be doing anything racist? So a lot of the conversations that they're having, we're still having in 2021, where white people don't understand that to the point of Ibram Kendi, that an individual can say something anti-racist or do something anti-racist and then in the next breath do something racist, right? That's what African-Americans are trying to teach white Americans and to some degree Soviet leaders, that it's not one or, or the other. Racism isn't just defined in terms of these overt acts of violence or discrimination, but in the way you treat me on a daily basis. And so a lot of the complaints with regard to the experiment and in integration at the International Lenin School came from white American communists thinking that they had to order and boss African-American colleagues around, you know, telling them they couldn't dance with white women, that they had to stand off or that they had to be chaperoned when they went through the city and they had to be monitored and surveilled. Or one instance in particular of a white American basically asking his African-American colleagues to do the jig for Russian workers on the street and not understanding that that was highly offensive and racist to have a white American tell uh, African-American to dance. All these um, conversations are in some ways, unfortunately, really relevant to 21st century attempts at fostering an understanding of what it means to be anti-racist and what it means to check yourself and not to try and regulate or assume control of blacks who you're studying with or you're working with to accept their leadership and not think that white people always have the answers for black people. That was going on in the halls of the International Lenin School in 31 and 32. So there was a desire to basically say, hey, you need to listen to us. We don't need to be led by white folk. We can also lead you. And until you respect that and accept that, we can't have integration. We can't have equality. The sort of present nature of those discussions, it's disturbing. And of course, Soviet leaders are like, they don't know what to do with it. (laughs) They don't know how to handle it because, as you say, their major understanding of racism is that it's these overt acts, acts of discrimination, discriminatory policies, physical violence. They don't know how to deal with these white Americans. They tell the American communist leadership, you got to send better (laughs) white Americans. You didn't do a good enough job in sending. Rather than trying to sort of really deal with the situation, you sort of passing the buck, if you will, and basically saying you need to to do better and send us more racially aware white American communists. And to some degree, the implication is that, well, you need to send more African-American communists who are less sensitive to racial indignities. So there is that at play, too. We need to have a group that is more willing to work together and perhaps even willing to sort of shake off any racist comments or behaviors. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's not all, in many ways, you're like, why don't you do better, right? I want Soviet leaders to adopt a more enlightened position and recognize just how important it is for African-Americans to be voicing these complaints, and rightfully and justifiably so, and to demand better both of white Americans and Soviet authorities. But in many ways, they fall short, unfortunately, of what they should be doing as proclaimed protectors and defenders of anti-racism.
0: And I think that also just gets at another reason why publicly Black Americans were quick to defend the Soviet Union and to support their anti-racist efforts because the Soviet Union even gave them a space to talk about more internalized racism Because when you get to a space where, like, state-sanctioned racism isn't even an issue that you have to deal with, that's when you can start talking about, like, what does societal racism look like? What, like, on a daily basis has to change to work towards, like, a fully anti-racist society?
1: Langston Hughes famously said, you know, why do I want to work with the enemies of racial equality to bring down the only place that is allowing for such conversations and such experiments to take place? You know, it's not in my best interest or the interest of the Black liberation struggle to do that. There's more value in allowing this space to continue to at least flourish on some level, but work itself out. There is value in its existence, even though it's an imperfect, highly imperfect existence.
0: The Soviet Union did not continue to be super anti-racist to this day. So we do need to talk about Nazis. The rise
1: of Nazi Germany encouraged a reconsideration of original Soviet policy that had lumped all capitalist countries together, including fascist countries with liberal capitalist democracies. And once the Nazis come to power in January 1933, there's then this recognition, well, they actually might be a greater threat to us than the United States, for good reason. I mean, Hitler was very open about his desire to claim his empire in the Soviet Union and Soviet lands and was a bitter anti-communist, obviously, and saw them as a threat to his racial vision because of their insistence on equality of race, gender, class. So this, I argue in the book, leads to a more softline anti-racism, a softline policy towards American racial politics. It doesn't go away. But the images become, the campaigns become less frequent, and now much of the attention is on denouncing Nazi Germany and preparing the country for the fascist threat, which is more real and more imminent. But still, you have films like Circus Made in 1936 that still deals with and condemns American racism in a really roundabout way, but still for 1936, if we look at Hollywood during that time, to have a lead character, this white woman who's supposedly a white American who has a a Black child who fled American racial violence, finds refuge in the Soviet Union, but is being essentially held captive by this very (laughs) Nazi-looking manager who is in love with her, but she doesn't love him. And he threatens to expose that she has a Black child, To the Soviet people, and she doesn't realize this white American woman, or she's playing a white American woman, doesn't realize that the Soviet Union doesn't care if she has a black child, that it's a racially tolerant society, that it's anti racist. She, of course, falls in love with this very Aryan (laughs) Soviet man blonde hair, blue eyed, broad shouldered. And essentially, at the most important scene at the end of the movie, The evil Nazi-like manager takes her Black son, who's a toddler, and exposes him to the audience. And the circus manager and the audience are like, who cares, right? They rescue the child from this Nazi. He's perplexed because he's like, what do you mean? She's committed racial crime by having this Black child. And they're like, we accept all children and they sing them a lullaby in all these non-Russian languages. And it's meant to sort of cement this Soviet friendship of peoples that is accepting of everyone. If this movie had been made during the more hardline anti-racist policies of the early 30s or the late 20s, there might have been a lead African-American character rather than having the child be African-American and not have two white lead protagonists, but it's still a movie that, especially my students are amazed, got made in 1936. It's propaganda to be sure, but it's rather revolutionary for the period. The era of of biological racism and all these fears of quote-unquote miscegenation and the fact that it's celebrating and affirming the humanity and dignity of interracial relationships in children is really quite remarkable.
0: It really is. And that's kind of what's remarkable about this whole period, is that at a time when social Darwinism and Jim Crow, racism was kind of solidifying everywhere else. The Soviet Union was trying to say that like racism is bad. It's kind of backwards. If you want to be morally good, you should not be racist, which just creates just such an interesting time and interesting interaction between Black America and the Soviet Union. Some really cool propaganda.
1: Right. And again, it speaks to the why African Americans would even deal with this Soviet experiment, because it's still a major power at the time. It's not a superpower yet. And you know, people would debate whether Russia is really white or off-white or occupying this liminal space, but still it's a European power that is is claiming that anti-racism is the path to modernity. It's the path for humanity and that racism is wrong and backwards and primitive and we need as humanity move beyond it and until we do that, war and violence will continue. It's a very powerful statement coming from a leading government of the 1930s, although again, one that's still you know, sort of trying to solidify its power and control, still modernizing but the fact that it's adopting anti-racism as part of its modernization is something that's widely appealing.
0: It really is. Thank you so much for coming on my show. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. There's some really cool political cartoons and images of Soviet propaganda in the book. If you're interested in getting that, please keep supporting this show by sharing it with as many people as you can. And all power to all
1: people, y'all.